All right, everyone, this is Ryan Selkis, and you're listening to Masari's Unqualified Opinions, where each week I interview crypto's top builders, investors, and personalities. Today, I'm speaking with Amir Halim, founder and CEO of Helium. Should be a very exciting conversation. Let's dive right in. This podcast is presented by Blockworks Group, one of the top blockchain events and media production companies I've worked with. For exclusive content and events that could help you with insight into the crypto and blockchain space, check them out at blockworksgroup.io and you will not be disappointed. All right, everyone. Welcome back. We've got a lot of excellent, unqualified opinions, live streams coming up uh, with some pretty fantastic guests, including today's guest, founder and CEO of Helium, Amir Halim. Uh, we're going to talk about the future of telecom. We're going to talk about their new tokenized uh, network that's helping to bring uh, wireless networks, low-impact wireless networks to cities across the world, starting with Austin. We're going to talk a little bit about that experiment uh, and how they see crypto and telecom ultimately intersecting, where there's uh, obviously a number of applications since the uh, the telecommunications industry, in some respects, could, could put a bit of a stranglehold on crypto if they were to ever censor transactions. Um, timely conversation as Amir and his team just completed a fundraise a few weeks ago from the likes of Union Square and Multicoin. Disclosure, Multicoin is an investor in Masari. Um, but uh, super excited to welcome Amir. Uh, Amir, I know that that intro did not do justice to uh, what, you're, what, what you're working on, but, uh, but why don't we just start off with the basics, you know, how you kind of came to this project, um, what your you know, crypto origin story was and how it's kind of intersected to bring, uh, to bring Helium to market um, and, and, and how you guys have gotten off to such a fast start. Cool, thanks. Yeah, actually, it was actually pretty good. Pretty, pretty good intro. Um, so Helium's been around for a little while and, and we have uh, always been trying to solve the same problem, which is how do we build ubiquitous low power wireless networks? Um, and we've, we've sort of had this opinion for six or seven years. Uh, I co-founded the company with Sean Fanning from, from Napster uh, and our, our belief at the time, and still very much true, is that low power things like sensors and tracking devices and stuff that look like this, you know, tiny little things, uh, just don't have a wireless network to use. Um, it's a sort of that simple of a premise, right? It, it should be low power, it should be ubiquitous, it should be incredibly cheap. Uh, and none of those, none of those, that combination of things just, just doesn't exist today. Um, and so that's always been the, the problem that we try to solve. Um, and crypto for, for us is a is a more recent addition. So probably two and a half years ago, we we started thinking about, you know, what if we could sort of flip this whole business model on its head? Because I, I, one of the challenges of building low power wireless networks um, is that the applications generally don't want to pay very much to use them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so so building out you know expensive infrastructure in a, in a way that cellular networks have been built today uh, and trying to recoup your costs by charging people to use them is is much harder in in the, in the low power space because uh, people are sending you know like temperature readings and location data you know stuff that is is on the order of bytes rather than gigabytes um, and so we, we sort of thought about it and said what if we just flip this on its head and sort of just abandon the whole idea of trying to make money on the network itself um, and try to sort of create this incentive structure and this and this model that that encouraged people to act as their own network operators. And so, so we've been sort of nicknaming this thing the People's Network, 
um, and that's you know sort of the approach that we've taken. Like we we built a blockchain from scratch and come up with a, a, a sort of novel consensus protocol that that really tries to incentivize people to act as network operators by by running these devices that we that we call hotspots. And so that's you know a, that's like a six year story try, attempted to be summarized in you know two two or three minutes. I'm, I'm sure he did a, a mediocre job. And, and, and could you just uh, elaborate a little bit on kind of mesh networks in general and the impact that they could have on something like the Bitcoin network, right? So uh, obviously, if you're talking about 3G, 4G, 5G data and video streaming, it's it's much higher bandwidth, um, and and that's something that takes you know quite a bit of fiber and and and, and quite an expensive infrastructure to actually facilitate. That's probably going to stay in the purview of the telecoms for the foreseeable future, or maybe that'll change someday. Um, but right now, you are talking about um, relatively. Uh, you're talking about Internet of Things devices, so so low bandwidth uh, devices that I would imagine um, include things like Bitcoin nodes, Ethereum nodes. Uh, and, and other crypto networks? Uh, it depends, right? I mean, it, like I, I think the bandwidth requirements for a typical, like Ethereum node, for example, are pretty high, right? There's a lot of traffic there, uh, a lot of syncing, the blockchain is big. Uh, and so that's not the kind of application that we would we would think of running on a network like this. Like this is uh, a network that has data rates that are, you know, one, one to 20 kilobit per second, right? So mm -hmm. very, very small. Um, and so I don't think you would you would look to run a full node that way, although potentially light clients and other stuff like that could could exist this way. Uh, and I know guys like Gotenna are are working on uh, you know these these sort of mesh networks that interoperate with Lightning and Bitcoin in general. Uh, but our structure is is less of a mesh and more um, like a traditional model, more like a cell model, where you have you know a base station. Uh, and devices connect directly to that base station and, and they don't hop through each other, right? So, so mesh networks are, um, you know, where you have like a bunch of different end nodes and they, they communicate through those nodes effectively to get back to the internet somehow. And, and, and we don't do that. Everything in our in our case is a, is a single hop. So you have a hotspot device uh, and it can listen to, you know, tens of thousands of, of end devices as long as they're in range of that hotspot. Um, and so there's no there's no meshing in our in our system per se. Um, and, and can you talk a little bit about uh, the Austin pilot and, and the economics to get a city up like that, up and running, and then you know, maybe some of the use cases for folks who might be considering purchasing one of these devices. Um, is this just something that, that a user would do as an experiment? Because um, I remember you know, the 21 computer uh, was you know, the, the one-line pitch that, that people kind of laugh at now was, um, you know, mine Bitcoin from your toaster. Uh, and obviously right. the, the economics of that were terrible, right? Th this is a little bit different because there is some type of consumptive use, um, but there also could be some type of, of payback period. One, the device isn't that expensive, um, so you wouldn't necessarily call it a, a major investment, but it's enough where it'll give people pause. Is this going to be primarily for hobbyists early on, do you think, or, or is there, you know, kind of real models that can emerge around this? Yeah, so there's, I mean, sort of two two sides to the to the universe, right? I mean, there's there's the um, there's a supply side, right, which is people building um, the network coverage, right? So so in Austin, um, we we typically so we have this wireless protocol that we call LongFi. Uh, it's extremely long range, uh, and so a single hotspot could create anywhere from a mile to you know 25, 30 miles of of network coverage, um, and so the, the 
the economics of building citywide coverage change a lot when you have um, that kind of capability, right? Where a single hotspot that's placed well with like a decent antenna um, could cover, you know, large parts of the city, you, you start to sort of realize that you could build this out in a reasonable way, only needing 150 or 200 people per city. And so that's what we've been been targeting. So I think we have around 200 in Austin. I, I don't remember the exact number. Um, so we sort of hit the, the cap that we wanted to hit there. Um, and so the, 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 the economics are sort of diff- interesting in this case, right? I think most crypto assets today are very speculative in nature, right? There's, very, there's not that much utility underlying a lot of these. There's some, but not all of them. Uh, in our case, like we, we use crypto as a way to basically build a wireless network that we anticipate will be used by a pretty broad set of users. And so some of those you know, at the bottom end are makers and hobbyists, uh, and then at the top end are big enterprises, right? And so you, I don't know if, if, if you saw in our press, you know, we're working with companies like Lime uh, and Nestle and Agulus uh, and Invisileation, companies like that that are building end products. So in the case of someone like Lime, it is the desire to to be able to track scooters when they're stolen, you know, mm-hmm. which I, I, I'm sure you guys have all, have all read happens often. Um, in the case of someone like Nestle, it's all about like optimizing supply chains. You know, so it's like they've got this water delivery business uh, where they drop water off to like water coolers at at, um, at businesses and offices, and they have no idea how much water is being consumed there. You know, so, and so those are just like simple applications that that you you feel like should be easily uh, accomplished today, but just aren't because it's either you know the service plans are too expensive, or the hardware is too expensive, or it's all too complicated, or there isn't network coverage, or you know it's always some combination of things that makes this hard. Um, but this is this is truly a a, uh, a utilitarian network. Um, and we'll have some sort of announcements coming up in the next few months around the kinds of customers and, and deals that we're putting together for people that actually take advantage of using it. When um, so, so walk through the roadmap, uh, Austin. It sounds like you know you've got the some of the infrastructure in place, but as you think about the testnet, uh, mainnet kind of schedule, what are some of the key milestones over the course of the next year? Yeah, so Austin is is sort of the mainnet launch for us, and, and that's uh, August first. Um, so that's a, a, a scary time because our, our blockchain, I think, is sort of is quite unique uh, in the in the sense that each of these hotspots is an is an actual miner on the network, mm-hmm. um, and there's no there's no sort of big cluster of nodes that acts as sort of the main consensus origin there. So so each of these hotspots is sort of running in some way running the blockchain um, itself, and so our consensus protocol is is kind of interesting there. So it's going to be a, an interesting time, like deploying something like this in the wild. Uh, but that's August 1st is, is, is when we're doing it. We intend to ship to the rest of the country by October. Uh, we may accelerate some cities uh, ahead of schedule, but we'll, we'll, we'll see about that. Um, we want to start getting into Europe next year. I mean, Europe, I think, is a huge market for, for both crypto and, and IoT in general. Uh, so I think there's a massive opportunity there. Uh, and in terms of long, long-term roadmap, I mean, something you said there, I, I think it's sort of interesting to think about, which is that we, we view this as a a mechanism to like deploy wireless infrastructure in general. Like we, we happen to view low power networks as the least well served today. Like there isn't really good infrastructure for those kinds of things. Um, but you can imagine how something like this could work uh, in the realm of something like 5G, especially when you think about how many base stations are required to deploy uh, 5G networks. And, and there's a lot more complexity there. There's like backhaul questions and you know, there's a lot more complexity with how you do that. But ultimately, if this succeeds, like we, we would view it as a roadmap to like deploy other wireless networks this way that that are sort of beyond just low power applications. 
And, and as you think about scaling, so you, you, know, you said it's a couple hundred of these devices to, to cover a city. How many, um, how many IoT or, or other low bandwidth connected devices can those support? Do you have to scale um, the network with, as, as the number of devices increases that leverage that 200? Or, or, or does that stay pretty static based more on kind of redundancies and just um, geographic coverage? Yeah, I mean, I think eventually you, you would probably uh, you, you would probably need a little bit more capacity than that as the network gets really on full tilt. I mean, I, if I remember, and I'll probably butcher these numbers, but it's I, I think each hotspot can support around three hundred thousand devices connecting per hour. Um, so you know, if you multiply that out by two hundred, you, you're supporting like whatever sixty million devices per hour, and that's you know probably pretty good um for the time being but we'll see you know it depends on the kinds of applications like if you have you know an application that is constantly sending data all the time or you know like pinging locations every second or something like that um then you could sort of quickly need more capacity than than the 200 hotspots can su supply but for the most part like we feel pretty good about 150 200 being a, a a number that gets you pretty strong coverage and of course like augmenting it is not that complicated right i mean the hotspots today we're selling for 495 um, but you will also be able to DIY your own hotspot for, for, for less than that, right? And so adding more hotspot capacity uh, is relatively inexpensive when you think about the cost of like deploying cell towers, for example, to try and, to try and do the same thing, which is, you know, 100 grand plus per, per site. Mm -hmm. could, could, you, um, could you give a sense for the, the potential cost savings? Um, you know, just rereading the, the multi-coin guys post, you know, they mentioned things, uh, you, you mentioned Lime, so maybe we'll go with that. Um, but, uh, but, you know, they mentioned pet tracking and, and you mentioned the scooters. How, how much, um, just how much cheaper is this and how much more uh, or less reliable uh, would it be to use a network like Helium versus 3G um, or, or, or the telecoms? Because it, it seems like there might be a trade-off in performance, um, but I, I, I'd, I'd love to know how you think through um, actually scaling that up and, and uh, getting to the performance that you need to work with someone like a Lime or with a large you know, uh, national uh, pet chip tracking company. Yeah, so starting with the cost, I mean, it, 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 in, in some settings, you know, this is something like a thousand times cheaper than the way you would do it with cellular. Um, and, and this is constantly in flux, right? I mean, the, the guys like Twilio and the cell companies are constantly sort of beating that price down. Uh, and so one way of thinking about it is just, you know, what does it cost versus cellular? The, the other way of thinking about it, which sort of gets to your other question, too, is that this is unlike any cellular technology that's available today. So there's there's a new thing called NVIOT, for example, that the, the carriers are rolling out, which is a low cost, um, a low power and low cost version of, of, of cellular. But even then it is you know anywhere from 10 to 100 times less battery efficient uh, than what we're doing with LongFi. So it, it becomes difficult to compare the two in a way because there, there, there isn't really a sort of direct equipment. Like there is no, um, low cost version of, of the, or low power version of cellular that sort of matches what, what we're talking about. Uh, but that's what we think. I mean, if you looked at it compared to, to some of the pricing out there that we've seen today, which is, you know, 20 or 30 bucks a month or something, it's, you know, thousands of times cheaper than that to, to use our network. Um, in terms of like the, the reliability and redundancy, I mean, one of the, the interesting characteristics of this network is compared to cellular is that we don't really have this like notion of being attached to a, to a hotspot. 
So if you have a scooter, for example, that's just zipping around Austin, uh, and it transmits a, a GPS location or a, or or you know some other reading like a battery reading or whatever, you know any multiple hotspots will probably hear that at the same time because the the, the sensor isn't isn't associated with a particular hotspot. So it just transmits. Uh, we've noticed this in San Francisco in our testing, like several hotspots receive it at the same time uh, because the range is so is so large. And so you end up with pretty good redundancy this way. I mean, we, we have, I think now about 30 hotspots in San Francisco, uh, and it is very rare that we go anywhere in the city with a transmitter and are only heard by a single hotspot. And so you get good redundancy even with, you know, 20 or 30 in a city like San Francisco, which is, you know, complicated by, by hills and stuff like that. So uh, we expect that the redundancy created that way in Austin will be, will be pretty good. Um, we have a, 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 one of our investors is Munich Re, which is, one of the world's largest reinsurance companies and you know we've had conversations with them around you know can you uh you know can you offer you know slas effectively via via an insurance policy on the network and those so there's interesting conversations that that are happening there um that i think could be really really interesting but fundamentally like just given the, the way the protocol works given the range uh we don't think that we're going to run into a, a too much of a reliability concern just because there'll be so much redundancy with that with, with that many hotspots in the city mm-hmm um, we got a we got a question in from uh, from Tom Shaughnessy uh, at Delphi. He he asks, is there any way that the ISPs can block the reselling of their data? Um, because it, it it seems like at some point you're going to be on a collision course with with some of the local telecom and, and ISP providers. Yeah, I mean, there's there's sort of. I don't know. There's, there's two or three answers to this. I mean, one is like we, we think you should be able to do whatever you want with your own internet connection. So that's fu- fundamentally that's our first position is that you know screw, screw those guys. Uh, but from a more like practical point of view, you know the kinds of data that gets sent and received here are so small. Um, you know, like just as an example, like a GPS packet is in our network is something like 35 bytes, right? And so it's absolutely uh, absolutely tiny, right? And so at some volume, maybe that becomes significant, but I think identifying that kind of traffic, you know, identifying that it's a hotspot and then blocking it is just a lot of work for for, for ISPs. And I, I don't know that they'll ever bother with it. And if they do, you know, we can always look at alternate tactics like using Tor and other things to, to, to obscure this. Uh, but I stand by the first part. I, I find it obnoxious that you can't just do whatever you want with your own uh, with your own connection. And that's what we're going with. Uh, well, certainly, certainly makes some sense. What, what, um, you know, there, there's been a couple of other companies, projects early on that were focused on, you know, kind of creating these networks for um, IoT devices. Filament uh, comes to mind, which is a project based out of out of Colorado. Um, why do you view the time uh, as right now, and 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 what are uh, what are some of the things that you've learned or borrowed from some of the other major blockchain protocols? Um, that uh, are, are kind of the most integral design components of, of your own network because uh, you are spinning up something from scratch. Uh, there's a pretty unique consensus mechanism um, that you're implementing. Um, it makes intuitive sense, but uh, you know, I, I'd be curious if, if you can kind of draw on some, uh, some other parallels or what, what some other projects have already built to, uh, to, to help people better understand the, the, this network and how it operates. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's a, that, that's, a, that's a hard one. So we certainly sort of gained a lot of inspiration uh, from, from looking at other projects. Um, so the, the, 
you know, the, the simplest way of thinking about it is um, the network is a is a asynchronous BFT protocol. At the end of the day, we, we use this thing called Honey Badger BFT, uh, which was d- d- designed by this guy Andrew Miller. He's a, a, a who's a professor. I can't remember exactly where, but he's been involved in the crypto space for a very long time. I think he's involved in Zcash. Um, and we liked Honey Badger because it's asynchronous, so so messages can sort of arrive at any particular time. There's no, there's no you know timing guarantees required, which which we thought were was important in a network like this because people are going to be connecting hotspots over all sorts of different internet connections, right? They're not they're not going to be in data centers. They're gonna they're gonna be on people's home networks and wherever they may be. Um, and the way that the, the what's interesting about our system is that. Usually, I think in in these sort of BFT type setups, like if I thought of something like Hashgraph or um, or EOS or or you know anything that looked like that, or Stellar even to some degree, like they, they pick their uh, consensus members and that's sort of it, right? So EOS mm-hmm. has this block producer thing, and you know there's 21 of them, and those are the pick, those are the elite few, and Hashgraph has the council or whatever it is, and, and we never really liked that model because it's it's sort of very centralized in, in, in nature at some level, you know, like someone picked that group and it's unclear how you would ever, you know, replace them and without completely forking the network. Uh, and so what, what we wanted to do was was have this BFT consensus group, but cycle the members constantly. Um, and, and the way we do that is we have another, we have a civil resistance system that we call proof of coverage. Um, and it's, you know, difficult to describe well, at least I, I don't think I'm very good at it, but it's, it's, it's a, challenge response protocol that happens over the wireless network and so basically hotspots that are sort of close together um you know within miles of each other send and receive these these encrypted onion packets to each other that are that are layered it can only be decrypted by the specific hotspot that was supposed to receive it um and we we use this system and it's it's you know more complicated than than i could probably get into in, in a reasonable period of time and i'm very bad at describing it but what ends up happening through through that uh, challenge response system is that hotspots gain and lose score. So over time, you know, hotspots are losing score. They're, the default state is that you are losing score and that you're dishonest. Um, and you increase your score by actively participating in the proof of coverage protocol and submitting proofs to the blockchain. And as you do that, your score increases. Uh, and every 30 or so blocks, we elect the, the best scoring hotspots in the network to become part of the consensus group. Um, and so constantly, um, you know, constantly cycling out the consensus group, we think is a very unique characteristic of the network and also very scary because no, no one is really in control of it at any time, right? It's just mm-hmm. constantly electing the next, you know, the next best hundred hotspots to, to be the consensus group for that period of time. Uh, and so it's a very interesting system. And we think it's, it's probably the most distributed type of, of blockchain network that we've seen just by nature of... Uh, the fact that the mining power can't really be consolidated in it, in any way, like there's no benefit to like buying 100 hotspots and putting them in your office. Um, you won't increase your score that way. Like they have to be distributed out um, in, into the wild. And so the, the the sort of miners in our network are very broadly distributed. The consensus group that runs the network is constantly changing um, and electing among the sort of highest scoring nodes. And so we, we got some of these tricks from I forget the exact network that we drew inspiration from for this, but but. It was the first time that we had seen sort of one one system be used to sort of bootstrap another, and so we, we you know we used proof of coverage to bootstrap you know our Honey Badger BFT implementation, um, and I can't remember where we got that, but it was, we we thought that was very clever, and that sort of inspired us to do this. 
Um, and then we, we were inspired by the guided tour protocol, which was uh, a paper that we read around, uh, around preventing DDoS attacks by requiring a, a similar kind of mechanism to gain access to a server. And we, you know, it wasn't applicable to what we're doing because RF only has a limited range. It, it, it can't, you know, you can't, no one can sort of target anyone else. Like they have to be at least within miles of each other. And so we drew some inspiration from that and sort of modified it a, 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 along the way. Um, but yeah, there's a lot of really interesting projects out there that, that we looked at to, to, to sort of think about this. But in terms of, you know, building a wireless network, like we're not really aware of, of, of many others that have tried to do this. Uh, Nodal is one that comes to mind, but, but they're mm -hmm. using Bluetooth and, you know, we, we just don't think the range of Bluetooth is feasible for, for, uh, for, for building citywide networks as we've seen with things like Tile in the past. Um, you know, I, I sort of kept a little bit of an eye on what Filament's doing, but I, I don't think they're in the sort of wireless network building business. So I think yeah. they're probably on a slightly different different tangent. Um, are, are these city-specific networks? So it, it, it's, because um, you're starting in Austin, right? Um, what, what, what happens when you move into New York? So you'll have New York and Austin. Will those be two separate networks with two separate um, uh, consensus? Uh, two separate blockchains. How, how do you think about consensus in, in a multi-city um, system, so that you don't have a situation where, uh, in in New York, you're going to have maybe as large a population of devices of users that are um, participating in the network, and maybe that's larger than the next five cities combined. Um, so, does New York then become uh, the largest? stakeholder uh, in the ecosystem that's that's actually providing proof of coverage. And and if you extend that out, does that create any geopolitical uh, challenges as, as you scale to other larger cities internationally? We, we don't think so. I mean, so we spent a lot of time on like how the scoring system works. And I, and I think it differs pretty substantially to what's in the white paper at this point, because we, we wrote that so long ago. But we, we've tried to um, so, so the proof of coverage challenges are rate limited, mm -hmm. um, so they can only they can only be submitted and requested um, at, at a reasonable interval. Um, and the scoring system, as I said, sort of penalizes people being clustered together too much. You, you know, so, so um, the, the real issue is that you're going to have hotspots that are sort of lone wolves that are just sort of sitting out there mm -hmm. um, on their own. Uh, they, they'll get some mining rewards for, for participating in, in the proof of coverage as sort of as a challenger, as we, as we call it in our system. But um, those guys, I think, will, will on average, you know, earn a lot less than people that are that are in uh, densely populated cities like New York. But we don't think, for example, that New York would dominate Denver or something just because there happen to be more people there. Yeah. Um, and the, 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 the network is a single sort of large network. So we, we've talked about sort of future scaling where you may have like, you know, separate consensus groups that sort of bubble up to a singular main consensus group. But today it's a single group. Um, and sort of one of the interesting characteristics of the wireless network that we, we are able to create this way is that we, we've sort of created this like gigantic VPN, right? So any device that, that uses the network um, can talk to any hotspot, but have its data in, uh, you know, routed in an encrypted way to the correct endpoint, right? So if I'm Lime, you know, and I have a bunch of these little tracking devices in my scooters, uh, it doesn't matter what hotspot I talk to, the hotspot will always inspect the blockchain and look at the ID of the device sending the data and then route the data to the correct endpoint. You know, that's, that's how this works. And that's actually one of the major 
issues that we've seen in low power network deployments so far today is that they're very fragmented, right? Like mm -hmm. there's a bunch of different companies uh, that have a bunch of different low power networks and they don't talk to each other. And there's, not, there's nothing that resembles a roaming standard or a roaming specification that really works. Uh, and so if you have, you know, like a LoRaWAN device today or something, there's no way of you really sort of taking that up, uh, uh, between networks. Uh, and often these networks like overlap in the same city. Um, and so, you know, the whole roaming problem is, a, is, a, is, is really a big one for an end user because they don't really want to have to think about that, right? They just want the device to just work. Um, and one of the benefits that we get from having this sort of distributed ledger that, that everything can inspect is that we can route data um, to the right endpoint you know, as a result of like looking up device IDs and things like that. So, so it's a, it's a, we think a relatively clever system that leverages a lot of what we learned over the years, which is, you know, which is things like you know, enterprises don't want their data to go uh, to a startup servers and you know, stuff that, that in hindsight is relatively obvious, uh, but is difficult to implement from a technical point of view, or at least implement well. Um, last question I have is just on, on kind of size and, and, and scale of the opportunity because, um, and I'll, I'll make the disclaimer for you, this is not investment advice, this is for information only. Uh, I, I'm just trying to do um, kind of back in the napkin like market sizing, right? So uh, obviously one of the theses in, in building out this type of network has to be that there's going to be an explosion of IoT devices. Um, something like Helium could potentially unlock um, the usefulness of, of many other low bandwidth devices. So um, there's kind of a, a pretty clear uh, kind of macro IoT play here. But if you just kind of look at the current snapshot of the world, what, what type of value could be captured by users in a network like Helium's um, if you, you know, replaced or, or, or were able to um, take, you know, just like Lime, internationally uh, to, to begin using this uh, as the, the communications protocol versus going through their, their local wireless carrier. And I think the aggregate opportunity size is extraordinarily large. I mean, d depending on, on, on who you talk to about this and which analyst you like, um, you'll hear numbers thrown around that are you know, devices in the tens of billions um, range over the next several years. And it's always a little bit, you know, difficult to take those things seriously because I think they've been making the same claim for, you know, about a decade now. So well, it's, that's, it's that's, always difficult. To that, that's the that's the number of devices, right? I'm t I'm talking about like what type of economic value, you know, at the communication layer where where you are would would potentially sit there. Yeah, it's difficult to say. I mean, there, there it's difficult to say because there isn't a perfect parallel today that you can draw. <laughs> Um, like there, there isn't a, a good example of a network like this that you can look at. And so I, I think number of devices is, is the only reasonable way to sort of start thinking about what the opportunity size could be. Um, and then sort of backing that out into like, you know, okay, what, what, how much could a single hotspot capture in a single city, for example, gets, you know, significantly more complicated. But uh, in terms of, you know, it just the way I think about this or, or a way to think about it is that, um, we expect the number of total IoT type or low power IoT devices to be in the tens of billions over the next several years. Uh, we know that cellular carriers are spending tens of billions or more dollars building out narrowband IoT networks uh, that aim to solve the same kind of problem. Uh, and so if you put at least those two things together, you, you get some sense of the scale of the opportunity here, uh, which is that if a network like this succeeds and gains any kind of market share, um, and if you know you end up in four or five hundred thousand Lime scooters, as an example, and you know we have another customer that will announce soon that is in a similar size, like three or four hundred thousand units, 
uh, over the next two or three years, you know, you start to you start to imagine that the potential of, of, of of sort of owning the owning a piece of that network or being your sort of own network operator uh, is potentially very lucrative. And so that that's you know the best way that, that we know how to estimate the size of this now. Uh, and we have various sort of you know token economic models and things like that. But yeah, I'm sure you'll understand with the with the uh, regulatory climate, we're not really going to share them with anyone. But we, we we think that the opportunity is is, is substantial to to participate. Um, and that's sort of the, the, the rationale for really doing any of this. I mean, that's, that's why the company exists. That's why we, we, we thought that this was a good opportunity in the first place. Uh, and we've sort of been encouraged over the years that like no one has actually figured it out very well, right? Because of the economics that I mentioned at the start, you know, building the network yourself, you know, the way that Sigfox um, has done it over the years, for example, is just extremely expensive. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that, like there's a very difficult path to like monetizing um, the, the network back when you are hundreds of millions or billions of dollars into it. Um, so we think distributing the economics like this is, is the right way to go from sort of a privacy and security perspective. Like we think this is the only the only way to do it. Um, that makes any sense. And we hope that over time that like, we will start to be able to extend this this strategy into other spaces that, you know, are in dire need. You know, I continue to be frustrated by only having Comcast as my broadband option at home. Uh, I would love to have alternatives. And, and so I hope that 5G and, and other technologies like it sort of bring about that change uh, and that things like Helium can participate in that and, and, and sort of distribute that a little bit more, more evenly. Well, it's, uh, it's certainly an exciting vision. Uh, we're uh, we're going to be on the lookout for how things go beginning of August. Uh, so best of luck in the meantime. Uh, where can people uh, find out more information, get their devices, or, or start playing around with the code? Yes, yeah, so helium.com is uh, is our is our uh, page. The, the store has been online for a few weeks now. So if you go to helium.com slash store, you can um, buy devices now. And so, of course, if you're early in the mining process, you were sort of disproportionately uh, earning tokens versus being later on in the in, in the process. So if, if you're interested in participating now is definitely the right time. Um, in terms of code, we have a GitHub repo up or, or an organization, github.com slash helium. Um, some of the code is, is open source there, so I think the peer-to-peer libraries and some of the distributed key generation stuff and some of the crypto primitives are there. We'll be open sourcing pretty much all of the rest of it very, very, very soon, uh, which includes you know instructions and, and guidelines on, on how to build your own hotspots and, and participate that way too. Well, Amir, thank you so much for joining us. Until next time, thanks guys. Peace. That's a wrap. Thanks for listening. New episodes of Unqualified Opinions go live weekdays at noon Eastern Time. You can follow me in the meantime on Twitter at 2BitIdiot if you want to continue the conversation or troll me. Otherwise, I'll see you next week.